Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Colossians. And if you want to use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 983. The title of today's sermon is A Spiritual Father's Prayer. Colossians chapter 1, and to honor God's word, I actually ask that all of you, if we can please stand for the reading of God's word. So stand with me as I read Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth." Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to enable us to understand these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, travel in time with me. The year is 60 AD, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. On the outskirts of the Roman Empire, there lies a region called the Lycus Valley, very much like the San Francisco Bay Area. And there were two main cities, two major cities in this valley. There was Heropolis, which might be like our Oakland, and there is Laodicea the capital, like our San Francisco. But there was also a third city, a much smaller city, Colossae. And in Colossae, because of the external pressures of culture, philosophy that threatens this fledgling church, the founding pastor of this church tells his church that he's leaving them. He's going to Rome to find the Apostle Paul. And for months, the Colossians received no word, no news. 
And then finally, one man arrives, Titicus. And he brings three letters from Rome, from the Apostle Paul. One letter, of course, was addressed to Laodicea. But two letters were directed to the church at Colossae. One, a personal letter to Philemon. And the second is preserved for you, which we are reading. Can you picture the Colossians huddled in to perhaps a small house, anxiously waiting to read this letter? And can you imagine their response as they're reading? The Apostle Paul knows us. He's thinking of us. Paul is writing to us. And Paul is praying for us. This letter of Paul, it opens with his prayer for the Colossians. Now, for us today, we learn to pray primarily through modeling. We can learn to pray through the models of Moses, King David, Jeremiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, as we open up Paul's letter, we read his prayer for the Colossians, and we hope to identify some features that we can incorporate in our prayers today. The first feature of Paul's prayer here is found in verse 3. Paul's prayer is a thankful prayer. It's a thankful prayer. If you still have your Bibles, look down at verse 3. We always thank God when we pray for you. And notice the plural pronouns here. This is actually not just Paul praying. He's writing this letter, but he's not the only one praying. Timothy is with him. He has other companions with him. Perhaps even the entire church at Rome, where Paul is situated, is praying for the Colossians. And notice to whom Paul is giving thanks. In verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are to pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Remember, one of Jesus' disciples went up to Jesus and asked Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus told the disciples, when you pray, say, Our Father, hallowed be thy name. In Matthew 6, 9, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says again, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. But of course, prayer doesn't just involve God the Father. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he even introduces God the Son by his full title here in verse 3, our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice here in verse 3, the frequency of Paul's thanksgiving. We always thank God when we pray for you. Notice the adverbial participle here, when we pray. It denotes an action that is simultaneous with the main verb. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that whenever we pray for you, Colossians, 
We always give thanks. And Paul's thanksgiving here is independent of his circumstances. You understand here that while Paul is writing, he is incarcerated under house arrest in Rome in chains. And yet, Paul is able to open up his prayer full of thanksgiving. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the 10 lepers? There were 10 lepers. Jesus was walking towards Jerusalem, and initially the 10 lepers stood far away. But recognizing Jesus, they came near to Jesus, and they begged Jesus for mercy, for healing. And Jesus told the 10 lepers, hey, you go and show yourself to the priests. So these 10 lepers, they go off, they walk towards Jerusalem, presumably to the priests. And as they were walking, they realized that they were healed. And one of the lepers, recognizing his healing, immediately turns and returns to Jesus. And the text says that he fell on his face at Jesus' feet to give him thanks. And remember what Jesus said? Were not 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Brothers and sisters, as Christians, our Heavenly Father expects us, He being the giver of good gifts, He expects us to give thanks. And how much more should we here in this sanctuary give thanks to our Heavenly Father for our blessings? So Paul starts here with a thankful prayer. But second, his prayer here is an informed prayer. It is an informed prayer. Look down in verse 4. Paul writes, Since we heard. Stop there. Paul had likely never visited this church at Colossae. He wouldn't know anything about this church. He had planted many churches throughout the Roman Empire, but he had never stepped foot in Colossae. So everything that he learns, everything that he's informed of comes from someone. And here we learn he was informed and receives a report from a man named Epaphras who travels from Colossae to Rome, a distance of about a thousand miles. And what was Paul's response when he receives this news from Epaphras? That there are people who've heard the gospel, received the gospel, and there's a church here. It immediately propels Paul to pray. Look down at verse 9. Paul writes, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. In other words, within that day, Paul Here's, he's informed, and it propels him to prayer. Interesting to read here what he's informed of, what Paul's informed of. Verse 4 again, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and second, of the love that you have for all the saints. Genuine Christian faith is always accompanied by true Christian love. 
And this is not just a love for a collective group. Here in the United States, in the South, there are still people who will use you in the plural, right? I love y'all. Or maybe some of you in this room might say, I love Grace Bible Church. But that's not exactly what Paul is meaning here in this verse. Paul writes that I have heard of your love that you have for all the saints. In other words, he is saying that he's been informed that the saints at Colossae had a love for every single one of all the saints, without exception. Lovable, unlovable, easy to love, difficult to love. The people, the saints at Colossae, loved every single one of God's saints. In verse 8, Paul further describes their love. Their love was in the Spirit, capital S. What that means is that this love isn't a worldly love. It comes from God, the Holy Spirit. It is a divine love. Do you remember Jesus telling his disciples Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet. He being the master, the discipler to the disciples, when no one else would get down to wash feet, Jesus took off his outer robe and washed his disciples' feet. And shortly after, he tells his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Christian love, it always accompanies genuine faith. And so when Paul hears of their faith, and he hears of their love for all the saints— it drives them to thanksgiving. But notice here another thing we learn about this. What is the reason? What is the basis behind this faith and this love? And we see this in verse 5. Paul writes, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope strengthens and intensifies faith and love. Knowing what God has in store for us in heaven, in the future, gives us motivation to be steadfast in faith and to practice sacrificial love. It is hope that produces greater faith, deeper love. Now, in practice, for you and I to have informed prayer— it requires two things. The first is that we need to be receptive to hear the needs of others. How can you and I expect to pray for one another when we don't even know the needs of one another? We need to get curious with each other's lives. We need to ask how we're doing. We need to be informed. We need to be receptive to hearing the needs of others. But there's a second thing that we need. The second thing is we need to be transparent 
about our own needs. It's one thing to be curious, but if someone comes up to you and asks you how you're doing, and you're saying, oh, I'm fine, everything's great, and you don't disclose anything, how is this brother or this sister going to be able to pray for you, to pray informed? I know some of us, we can be fairly ashamed, fairly scared about sharing things that make us vulnerable, make us weak. But I should point to you that throughout the Old Testament, all the men of faith, the spiritual giants in the Old Testament, nearly all of them, the picture that's painted of them shows their failures, right? Adam, he failed. Noah, he was inebriated, exposed himself, he failed. Abraham failed several times. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, King David. If our sovereign God can reveal the sins of these spiritual giants, how much more can he use us when we are able to be vulnerable, to be transparent? Are your prayers informed? Are you both receptive and transparent? There's a third facet here in Paul's prayer. It is a thankful prayer. It is an informed prayer. Thirdly, it is a gospel-centered prayer. A gospel-centered prayer. Look down in verse 5 again. Paul writes, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So Paul, by the fifth verse, already begins to define the word gospel. What is the gospel here in verse 5? It is the word of the truth. It is the message of the truth. It is the proclamation of the truth. And the adjective truth, it describes the quality of the noun. So in other words, the gospel is the true word. The gospel is the true message. The gospel is true preaching. And therefore, the gospel is not self-evident. It cannot be discovered by oneself. The gospel must be brought to you, delivered to you, revealed to you, preached to you. The gospel must be heard. And we read here that the Colossians hear the gospel and they hear it through a man named Epaphras. Look down in verse 6. Paul writes, which has come to you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved or our fellow servant. You know, this week, Epaphras has quickly become my hero. And let me explain to you why. Epaphras was likely converted in Ephesus. So Epaphras, in the small city Colossae, travels 100 miles to this major city, uh, Ephesus, maybe for tourism, 
business. I'm not sure. And he meets the apostle Paul. He hears the gospel and God saves Epaphras. Within a matter of days, maybe a few weeks, Epaphras quickly figures out that the apostle Paul, this missionary giant in the Gentile world, will likely not travel another hundred miles to the Lycus Valley to Colossae. And so what does Epaphras do? He realizes it's going to be him. He's going to go back. He's going to tell his family. He's going to tell his friends. He's going to tell his fellow countrymen the gospel that he had heard and received. But Epaphras doesn't stop there. He gets to Colossae. He shares the gospel. Some believe they start a church. And then he goes to the big cities. He goes to Heropolis. He goes to Laodicea. And sure enough, the gospel was preached and people received and churches were formed in those bigger cities. And when all of this success was witnessed by Epaphras, he still realized that the gospel was not dependent on him. And so he leaves everyone behind to travel a thousand miles to Rome because he believed and trusted that the gospel ministry meant more than just himself. The point is this. Epaphras did not have any formal training. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't even have a personal encounter with our Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing he was entrusted was the gospel that he had heard and received in Ephesus. He's like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Do you remember the story of the Samaritan woman? Here's a woman, an outcast, had six husbands with a man, the seventh, who wasn't even her husband. Broad daylight, midday, in the heat of the sun, because she's an outcast, she draws water at the well. And our Lord Jesus Christ approaches her, has a conversation with her. And within a matter of minutes, she realizes that she is in the presence of the promised Messiah. What does she do? She drops everything. Even her water jug, the whole purpose she was there to draw water. She leaves the water jug, runs back into town, and testifies to the townspeople of the promised Messiah. And John records in John chapter 4, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. So that is why Paul in verse 7 can say of Epaphras, this is our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of God. You know, there's another thing that Paul writes here about the gospel. Look back down in verse 6. 
The gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. And this phrase, as indeed, it can mean just as also or in the same way also. So what Paul is saying is that just as the gospel was preached and received here in Colossae, it is being preached and received in the same way, in the same manner, in the entire world. Past, present, future, here, there, everywhere, this is how the gospel works. The gospel is not dependent on the qualification of the messenger. You don't need a formal education. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to be the Apostle Paul. You don't need to be a pastor. Just like the Samaritan woman, like Paphras. You only need to hear and understand the grace of God in truth, the gospel. Now, you might be asking, how can this be? Well, Paul describes the gospel in another way in Romans chapter 1. He says that the gospel is the power of God in salvation. He writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Notice, Paul doesn't say the gospel contains the power of God. Paul doesn't say the gospel taps into the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And that is why the gospel can spread throughout the world. An increasing number of people are hearing and believing in all parts of the world. And Paul is so fixated on the gospel and gospel ministry, it permeates his prayers. What about you? Are you preoccupied with the gospel? Are you obsessed with the gospel? Are you gripped by the gospel? Because if you are, it will show up in your prayers. Thankful, informed, gospel-centric, fourth, Paul's prayer here is a sanctifying prayer. It is a sanctifying prayer. Look down in verse 9. It reads, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now that short phrase, and so, is a little understated. One Greek scholar translates this phrase, This is precisely why. The translators of the New American Standard Bible translates this phrase, For this reason also. So for what reason Paul is Paul praying? Well, it's everything he talked about in verses 4 to 8. So what Paul is saying is, because I've been informed, Colossians, by your faith and love, which compels me to thank God the Father, and because I see that the gospel ministry is a continuing, even without my direct contact or involvement, we have not ceased to pray for you. But notice, Paul doesn't even explain or describe what he actually prays for until now in these four verses. 
But notice first what Paul does not pray for. Paul does not pray for the temporal needs of the Colossian church. He does not pray that God will improve the politics of the Roman Empire. In fact, he'll say at the end of the chapter, Colossians, remember my chains. But he never asked for prayer that his chains be removed. So if he's not praying for these things, what is Paul praying for? Look down again in verse 9. He is asking, Paul is asking that you Colossians may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to him. This is a sanctifying prayer. One pastor says that Paul here is praying for souls more than bodies. And to get a bit more precise here, first, Paul is praying for knowledge that comes from God. Notice he's saying that he's asking that you will be filled with the knowledge. And the active agent is not the Colossians. It's not you and it's not me. The active agent who fills us with the knowledge of God is God Almighty God himself. And the knowledge of his will consists here of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul is praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will by having spiritual wisdom and discernment in full measure. And this adjective spiritual here. It is again referring to the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul is praying, please fill the Colossians with your knowledge that comes from the wisdom and discernment from the Spirit, capital S. So he prays for knowledge, but that is not the end point. That is not the final goal. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge by itself puffs up. If all you and I have is knowledge, it will generally lead to pride. So Paul is not asking for knowledge for the sake of knowledge. What does he ask for next? He prays for godly living. Look again, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That phrase, so as, can be translated so that it connotes purpose. So Paul is praying here, Colossians, I want you to be filled with knowledge so that you will walk in a manner worthy. He further describes this walking worthy in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, And he wrote this letter very nearly the same time as the book of Colossians. He writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. And get this, this is his description. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But get this. Walking worthy and godly living is still not the end point. 
It's not knowledge, even though knowledge enables godly living. But that's not the end point. What is the end point? Look again down at the text. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This phrase, fully pleasing to him, modifies walk worthy. So Paul is praying. I am praying, Colossians, that you be filled with the knowledge of God so that you will walk worthy, godly living, so that you will be fully pleasing to God. What is the end point? We are to please God in all aspects. We are to please God in everything. We are to do all things for the glory of God. Now, he clarifies what it means to walk worthy with four descriptions. First, he says that walking worthy, in verse 10, it's bearing fruit in every good work. Second, walking worthy is increasing in the knowledge of God. And this uh, participle increasing, probably it downplays the actual intensity of the verb. This verb can also be translated growing, extensive growth, intensive growth. One translator translates this phrase, multiplying in the full knowledge of God. Do you remember the disciple John, when he closes his gospel, in John chapter 21, John writes, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Our God is such a big God. No books contain, can contain all the descriptions, all the attributes. You and I will never be able to completely grasp the knowledge of God. But what Paul is praying for is that all of you Colossians, indirectly all of us, may we multiply in the full knowledge of God. Bearing fruit, increasing. Thirdly, walking worthy is in verse 11, being strengthened in all power. Literally, it's being empowered with all power. And he, he, he describes this even further. Paul is praying that they be strengthened to attain all endurance and patience. Isn't that what you and I need today? Endurance, patience, I mean, endurance and steadfastness to persevere every circumstance. I'm sure most of you in this room, you've either been going through a trial or you're going through a trial right now. We need, patience, we need endurance. We need steadfastness. And we also need patience. Patience so that we can love all people. Difficult people. Difficult to love, it requires patience. Paul's praying that they be strengthened in all power to attain all endurance, patience with joy. And he also prays that the Colossians will also give thanks to the Father. You know, 
he doesn't pray for the temporal needs of the Colossian church. And several historians, including Eusebius, records that there is a great earthquake that severely damages all of the cities of the Lycus Valley in AD 64. The cities were severely damaged, wiped out. Laodicea, because of its size and its great wealth, Laodicea was able to rebuild. Colossae, many believed, was never rebuilt after the earthquake. The readers of this letter, it is only a matter of a couple of years that their church, their homes, their city wiped out. Natural disaster. Paul is not unempathetic to temporal needs. Our God cares about your temporal needs. But Paul has a greater priority. God has a greater priority. That premise is not just our earthly needs and trials. The primary focus is the spiritual welfare of the saints, of the Colossians. And so he prays the sanctifying prayer. Well, there's a fifth aspect of this prayer. It is an exonerated prayer. It is an exonerated prayer. Look down in verse 13. Paul writes, He, that is, God the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does he say here? He says, God has delivered us. He has saved us. He has rescued us. He has freed us. In summation, he has exonerated us. Now, what does the word exonerate mean? One English dictionary gives three definitions for the word exonerate. First, it means to free from blame. Second, to free from a responsibility or obligation. And third, to unload a burden. Through Christ, you and I have been set free. Our Lord Jesus Christ says in John chapter 8, if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. It is through Christ that our burdens are released. Jesus says again, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. Gentle am I, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. It is in Christ that we have redemption. Now, what does the word redemption mean? What is redemption? A simple definition is this. A ransom payment to secure the freedom of a prisoner. A ransom payment to secure the freedom of a prisoner. 
There's a story in the Old Testament of a prophet named Hosea. And you can read more about him in the book of Hosea. But the prophet Hosea was married to a woman named Gomer. And Gomer had three children. The first was likely Hosea's legitimate child. The next two we're not even sure of. And why is this? We learn that Gomer is a prostitute. Gomer is an adulteress. And having been, in a sense, fed up, Hosea tells Gomer, you go your way. You go with the man that you love and you don't come back. And sure enough, Gomer goes away. And in Hosea chapter 3, God gives a striking command to Hosea. And he tells Hosea, go, love your wife who is chasing another man who is an adulteress. And so sure enough, Hosea goes to the public square and finds Gomer. Now, during this time, the penalty, the punishment for adultery is death. And so not seeking punishment, not seeking death, not seeking vengeance, Hosea takes Gomer home. But he doesn't just take her home. He takes out 15 pieces of silver. He brings 10 bushels of barley. And he purchases Gomer. He redeems Gomer. Gomer is his legal wife. He had every right to be able to just take her home but he purchased her again like a slave to redeem her. And in some ways, that is what God did for us. You understand that when God created everything, the heavens and the earth, he created you and I, and he has the authority over us. We are his But he didn't just stop there. He purchased us. He redeemed us. And according to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Know that you were ransomed. Know that you were redeemed. But not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. God purchased us a second time by not withholding his son who hung on the cross. You and I are twice gods. We were created and we were redeemed. Through Christ, we have been free. Through Christ, our burdens are released. Through Christ, we have redemption. Through Christ, we have forgiveness of sin. In Christ alone, we have been exonerated. And therefore, we pray from the posture as Christ exonerated. Well, let me share with you one more spiritual father's prayer. 
His name is Pastor Shu, H-S-U. He was my first spiritual father. God had saved me when I was in high school, and he was the senior pastor of the church where I had grown as an early Christian. And at age 17, it was the summer before I was to leave for college, that this pastor invites me over to his house for a one-on-one conversation. And when I showed up into a, in his house, there was no meal. There were no refreshments. I don't even think there was a glass of water. And he sat me down in his couch. And he told me, he said, Pedro, I'm so thankful for you. And I want you to tell me what are your plans for college. He wanted to be informed of my life and my future. And so I shared with him my plans. And then he asked me a remarkable question. He asked me, Pedro, have you thought about being a pastor? I I turned to him. I said, Pastor Shu, um, didn't you hear me? I'm going to go to a good college. I'm going to get a good job. Hopefully get married. Have a family. At this point, there's no room in my life. I'm not even thinking. No, I, I, I have no plans to be a pastor. Well, about 12 years later, I'd finished college, medical school, residency. I'd returned home. And I didn't even notify this pastor. This pastor has since retired, getting older in his 80s. And when he had learned that I had returned to the area, he contacts me for a second one-on-one visit in his house. Same house, I showed up, came in, no meal, (laughs) no refreshments. And again, to my recollection, no cup of water. And he sat me down and he said, Pedro, I've been praying for you. And I've been praying that you will one day be a pastor. I I, I told Pastor Sue, I said, Pastor, he's answered our prayers. He's protected me. I'm still a Christian. I, I finished medical school. I have a job now, and my job is helping people every day, just as you help people every day as a pastor. And he looked at me, and for the first time, his countenance fell. And he gently patted me on my shoulder, and he said, I understand. A year later, he got more sick, and he died. And that was my final conversation with him. Brothers and sisters, I stand here before you because of the prayers of that spiritual father. Your prayers are powerful. And they are powerful because we have a powerful God. So pray with fervor. Pray with zeal. Pray consistently and pray confidently. And when you pray, be thankful, informed, gospel-centered, sanctifying, 
from a posture that we are Christ's exonerated. 